LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Michael Cremo, author of Forbidden Archaeology, Human Devolution, and the soon-to-be-published My Science, My Religion, all of which offer radical and profound insights into what Michael believes is the true nature of human origins, identity, and destiny. Darwin's theory of evolution has thus far failed to explain the origin and nature of life on Earth, and yet it is Darwinian thinking, with its emphasis on competition, conflict, and survival of the fittest, that dominates our governments, our education systems and thus our entire society. We are told that the life on this planet arose randomly from a primordial ooze for no reason, no purpose and devoid of design. But how did single-celled organisms become the complex organic structures which populate the world today? What series of genetic mutations actually took place and where is the evidence for them? Contrary to popular perception, Darwin's theory of evolution has answered none of these questions in any scientifically proven way, nor can it even begin to address the nature of mind or the origins of consciousness. From junk DNA to dark matter, reductionist materialistic science has left us with more questions than answers. For the sake of the planet and all life on it, we urgently need to open our minds to new possibilities and Michael Cremo offers us many of these. Hello and welcome, Michael Cremo, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm happy to be with you and all your listeners. Excellent. Um, now, Michael, we're here today um, to discuss some of the issues raised uh, in your book, uh, Human Devolution, um, a Vedic Alternative to Darwin's Theory. And although that was published some time ago, uh, really, I mean, the work that you're doing is an ongoing project uh, exploring, you know, looking for answers uh, where presently they're mainly just questions. And the background to all this stems from another book which you co-authored uh, with Richard L. Thompson some years ago called Forbidden Archaeology. And that basically set out that over the past two centuries, researchers had found bones and artifacts showing that humans, just like ourselves, existed on Earth not th thousands of years ago, not even hundreds of thousands, but millions of years ago. However, the scientific establishment has ignored this information uh, because it contradicts the dominant paradigm, which is the uh, characterized by Darwin's theory um, of evolution. And in Human Devolution, which is kind of the sequel to this, you set out the, the big question, OK, if we didn't evolve from apes, where did we come from? And a short quote from yourself says, uh, we did not evolve up from matter. Instead, we devolved or came down from the realm of pure consciousness or spirit. Now, before we dive into some of the details here, perhaps you could just 
sum up, uh, just elaborate on the overall concept of the book a little bit? Well, the overall concept of the book Human Devolution is that we did not evolve up from matter as most scientists now believe. I think it's important to understand, even before we ask the question, where did where did we come from? Uh, where did human beings come from? We should first of all ask the question, what is a human being or any other living thing? And today, most scientists are going to say that we're just machines made of molecules. That's all we really are. But I think if we look deeply into the scientific evidence, we'll see it's more reasonable to say that we're composed of three things, ordinary matter, molecules, yes, that's part of what we are. But beyond that, there is a subtle mind element with some very unusual powers like uh, extrasensory perception, telekinesis, things of that sort. So, and then beyond that, there is the conscious self, which is beyond matter completely. So when I speak of mind and consciousness, I don't mean temporary byproducts of bioelectrical activity in the brain. I mean real things with their own independent existence apart from matter. So I think it's important to establish that, first of all, that we're something more than just machines made of molecules. And once we've understood that, then it's easy to see that our origin is beyond matter. As conscious beings, we originally exist on what I call the level of pure consciousness. And it's possible to remain there, but if a conscious self descends from that level of pure consciousness into the world of matter, then it becomes covered by matter, and those coverings are what we call bodies. So that process by which the pure conscious self comes in contact with matter and becomes covered by matter is what I call devolution. We don't evolve up from matter. We devolve or come down into matter from a position of pure consciousness. So what I'm saying is that matter does not produce consciousness, but matter can cover consciousness temporarily. Mm -hmm. Now, all of this flies in the face of what I referred to a few moments ago as the dominant paradigm, um, which is Darwinian theory of evolution, uh, which purports to explain life on Earth, uh, its origins, how it came to be as it is, says a lot about where it's going, allegedly. However, what people often forget, um, is lay people, scientists, all of us, is that Darwin's theory is just that. It's a theory. It is not proven that this is how life on Earth came to be and quote-unquote evolved. The answers are not in. Um, but we have in Darwin's theory of evolution a, a paradigm that is powerful and it's very deep rooted, woven throughout 
everything, you know, all aspects of our lives and thinking, though we may not, you know, on the surface realize it. Um, so anything that questions us, and we've seen we see this in the media all the time, anything that calls this into question, however well-reasoned and however scientifically based, um, tends to get ignored, thrown out, vilified, and um, no doubt, you know, I've, I've read criticism of your ideas along these lines. Or perhaps you could just uh, explain why Darwin's theory uh, is not what it purports to be. Well, first, first of all, I, I, I just want to say, if somebody honestly believes that the Darwinian theory of evolution is the best way to explain the origin and purpose of, of life, I respect that in, in this sense. I, I respect the right of each individual to make up their own mind about these questions. But what I do object to is the Darwinist influencing governments to give them an absolute monopoly in the education systems around the world so that only their idea can be taught as having anything to do with the, the truth about the origin of life and the purpose of life. So that's what I object to. Not that any particular scientist or individual accepts the Darwinian theory of evolution. I think everyone has a right to make up their own minds about these things. But what I do object to is them using government to give themselves a monopoly in the education systems and scientific establishments so that there isn't any real diversity and people really don't get a, a choice in the education systems. Any alternatives are forced to exist on the margins of, of society. So, uh, you know, that's what I object to. Now, if you ask me, well, why personally am I not a supporter of the Darwinian theory of evolution, I've got answers for that. First of all, uh, a big part of their idea is that life comes from matter. Life and consciousness come from matter. Uh, they think that in the beginning there weren't any living things. There were just chemicals floating around in the Earth's early oceans and bodies of water. And they believe that somehow or other, some of those chemicals combine together to form the first self-reproducing organism. And this is something that you'll see in every biology textbook. You'll see it on countless scientific television programs. You'll, 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 you'll hear that idea being promoted as the absolute truth. But the real fact is no scientist today has ever shown how exactly how chemicals could combine together to perform to to make up the first living thing nobody has explained exactly which chemicals combine together in exactly which way to form exactly what first self-reproducing organism so the theory is in trouble right from the start the second reason i object to it is that once you grant the existence of some first self-reproducing, single-celled 
organism, there is no real explanation of how you go from that first single-celled organism to uh, creatures like human beings with complex uh, organic structures. We're told it's happened by evolution, and by that they mean, well, somehow or other, some of these single-cell organisms started sticking together in multi-celled organisms. Exactly how that happened, nobody has really explained. But you know, they say it happened. And then uh, they believe that at a certain point, these multicellular organisms start reproducing in sexual fashion, making use of DNA genes. And they think, the DNA, the genome, contains information that specifies the structures that will develop in an organism. And you know, they think if you modify the DNA through mutations and gene duplication and other processes, that this will change the structure of the organism. And Say, for example, if you want to explain, well, how did the eye come into existence? Well, first of all, they would say there was a tiny little organism that didn't have a developed eye. Perhaps it just had a light-sensitive spot somewhere on its head. And they believe that some mutation took place in the genetic structure of that simple organism that didn't have a developed eye that led to the first step towards a more developed eye. Perhaps that light-sensitive spot became a depression. And then there was another mutation in the genome of that creature, maybe thousands of years later, that resulted in a clear membrane covering that light-sensitive depression, and so on and so forth, until finally you get the developed human Eye with all of its incredible powers. And basically that's the explanation that you see in all the textbooks. But if you ask, can you tell me exactly what was the genetic structure of that simple organism that didn't have an eye? Can you tell me exactly what series of genetic mutations had to take place over many millions of years that led to the formation of the uh, developed human eye, you'll find no such detailed explanation in any scientific textbook or uh, scientific publication. So that's another problem with the theory. A third problem is the origin of consciousness. You know, consciousness is something that we all experience. It's the most real fact of our existence. If I weren't conscious and you weren't conscious, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So no one has explained exactly how consciousness arises in organisms. They would say, if you organize the molecules in the brain in a sufficiently complex way, it, it generates consciousness. But no one has ever actually demonstrated that, how you can combine chemicals together so that consciousness 
is the result. So a lot of the theory of evolution is based on accepting things on faith that have not been scientifically proven in any rigorous scientific way. And the other point is that there's a lot of fossil evidence that contradicts that whole picture. As I pointed out in my book, Forbidden Archaeology, according to the Darwinian theory of evolution, humans evolved fairly recently on Earth, having evolved from more primitive ape-like human ancestors, which uh, evolved from primitive apes and monkeys, which evolved from primitive mammals, which evolved from reptiles, which evolved from amphibians, which evolved from fish, which evolved from single-celled creatures in the ocean, which came into existence from chemicals. Uh, There's a lot of fossil evidence contradicting that whole picture. There's evidence that humans like us have been present for millions and millions of years on Earth, actually going back to the very beginnings of the history of life. So, So you have a lot of problems with the Darwinian theory of evolution. First of all, they can't show how life first arose on this planet. Once the first living thing did arise, they haven't explained in any strictly scientific way how complex organisms developed from the first simple organisms, and they haven't explained the origin of consciousness, and there's a lot of fossil evidence that contradicts their whole picture. Now, that said, I understand that the theory has some plausibility for people who are willing to accept a lot of things as being plausible rather than strictly demonstrated in any scientific way. And I don't have any objection if there are scientists who want to pursue these things on the basis of that theory. But I would just ask for two things. They should just admit that they really haven't proven things according to the terms that their very theory demands. You know, they haven't shown how life comes from chemicals. They haven't shown in a detailed way how the complex features of organisms have come about by the processes they have made part of their theory, namely a genetic variation acted on by natural selection in the course of reproduction with modification. I mean, it's a plausible idea, but it hasn't been strictly demonstrated in a, in a scientific way. Uh, well, upon closer inspection, um, we discover that we know virtually nothing in terms of it being, you know, absolutely proved empirically, no questions left. And as you say, not only do we not know why life even occurs in the first place, and that uh, genetic experiments in, in labs have not proved anything beyond doubt and attempts to create life in laboratory conditions from chemicals and sort of striking it with, you know, metaphorical lightning and what have you, those have not worked. And also, I don't have chemistry or biology beyond high school, but it's my understanding that life comes from life. 
that life can't come from something that either was never alive or is dead. Yes, that's absolutely true. That's why I was saying right in the beginning here that before we even really begin to discuss questions such as the origin of life and the origin of human beings, we should first of all answer the question, well, what is a human being? And today, you know, many scientists are going to say that a human being or any other living thing is just a complex machine made of molecules. That's all there is to it. But I think there is evidence that consciousness can exist apart from matter. Most scientists today would say that consciousness is produced by chemicals interacting in the brain. But I think there's a lot of evidence showing that consciousness can exist apart from the brain, apart from matter and all its different combinations. And you know, this evidence comes, for example, from medical studies of out-of-body experiences. You know, there are times when a person should be completely unconscious, for example, during a heart attack. The heart stops beating, blood stops flowing to the brain, medical instruments will show that the brain waves have stopped. A person in that condition should be completely unconscious, yet many people in that condition have reported separating from their bodies and they look down and they see what the doctors and nurses are doing to try to revive them from the medical condition that they're in, as in a heart attack. So there are physicians who have studied this phenomenon very carefully. For example, the American cardiologist, Dr. Michael Sabum, heard some of these reports from his patients, and he wondered, are they telling the truth, or are they just making up some stories? So he did a scientific study. He took uh, about 25 people who had reported having these out-of-body experiences <clears throat> during heart attacks. And he interviewed them very carefully. He wanted to know from them exactly what you know they saw the doctors and nurses doing during the time they should have been completely unconscious. Then he went to the doctors and nurses who had treated them and looked at the detailed medical records they had kept during their attempts to revive these people who had had heart attacks. And he found that the descriptions given by the patients matched the records kept by the doctors who had treated them. And the patients don't see these detailed medical records, and the treatment given to heart attack patients varies. It's not always exactly the same. So he, Dr. Sabum found that the reports given by these patients who had these out-of-body experiences during, during which they experience separating from their bodies and observing what the doctors and nurses were doing. He found their reports of these things matched the detailed medical records kept by the doctors and nurses who had treated them. And, you know, these kinds of experiments have been duplicated at other 
medical institutions around the world. So it's a phenomenon that's been repeatedly studied by physicians in different parts of the world. And I think the conclusion is that during these times of crisis, the conscious self can separate from the brain, separate from the body, and then re-enter the body. And there's a further body of evidence that shows that not only can the conscious self temporarily separate from the body and then re-enter the same body, but it can transfer to another body. Of course, this brings us into the realm of reincarnation or transmigration of the conscious self from one body to a new body. And there is a body of scientific evidence that supports this. It comes from psychiatric studies of past life memories. Now, for example, the psychiatrist Dr. Ian Stevenson from the University of Virginia Medical School studied thousands of cases of past life memories reported by young children. He liked studying reports from young children because an ordinary person, you know, an older person, might be able to go on the web and gather enough information about some departed individual to put together a convincing past life memory. So these young children, three years old, four years old, aren't liable to do that. So in over 800 cases, Dr. Stevenson and his co-workers were able to verify the existence of the person the child claimed to have been in a past life. So this, to me, is further evidence that the conscious self is non-material. It can survive the death of the material body. It can enter a new material body. And then, of course, we have to ask, well, where did it come from originally? And I think the answer is that it comes from a reservoir or level of pure consciousness. I don't think that's unreasonable to suppose if if this conscious self is not produced by combinations of chemicals if it can exist apart from the brain apart from the material body then i think it's quite reasonable to suppose that it comes from some non-material level of reality. So that is you know, the basis of my concept of devolution. I think it's possible for a conscious self to remain on that higher level of reality, but the ruling principle of that higher level of reality is, I believe, love love for the source of all conscious beings, love for all other conscious beings, unselfish love. If a conscious self becomes egotistical, selfish, 
it can no longer exist on that level of pure consciousness. It, it would disturb the harmony there. So it's given another field of activity in which it can act out its selfish desires. And that field of activity is the world of matter. And here we observe two types of conscious selves in the world of matter. We see one type of conscious self that's getting deeper and deeper into selfishness and greed and anger and conflict and domination and control and exploitation of matter and other conscious selves. Then there's another type of conscious self that is trying to go back to its original position. It's trying to understand, I am a being of pure consciousness. I have needs that go beyond the material necessities of life. So people who think like that will try to satisfy their material necessities in the most simple, natural, and efficient way possible. Some people on planet Earth are trying to do that. They're understanding that uh, we're poisoning the air, poisoning the land, poisoning the water with our attempts to dominate, control, overproduce, and overconsume you know, material resources. They understand that we're harming you know, the planet Earth, and that we can't continue to overproduce and overconsume in this unsustainable way. So they're trying to figure out ways in which we can live on this planet with respect for the planet and finding ways to satisfy our legitimate material needs in the most simple, natural, and efficient way possible. And further than that, they understand that not only am I a being of pure consciousness, but all others are ultimately beings of pure consciousness, and we're all related. We're all part of the same family of conscious beings. So there's no need to divide ourselves up into so many groups and compete with each other uh, for material domination and control. Uh, which is the root of much of the conflicts that we see in the world around us. I don't think we have to look very far to see that there are unacceptable levels of conflict among individuals, among classes, among races, among genders, among, among uh, nations, among religions, there are unacceptable levels of conflict. I think there's a healthy level of conflict, you know, as we sometimes see in sporting events and things like that. You know, little competition is nice, but it's reached unacceptable levels, I believe. And part of it is this, what's underlying this is the conception of the self 
that it is being communicated to people by the supporters of the Darwinian theory of evolution who have monopolies in all of the education systems in most countries of the world. What they're teaching people is that we're machines made of molecules in competition with each other for survival. So I think this is what underlies a lot of the world's environmental crisis, this idea that we're machines made of matter in competition with each other for survival. That supports a culture of overproduction and overconsumption of material things. I think it also underlies our financial crisis because everyone is trying to maximize their financial benefit at the expense of others. And some people are taking unfair advantage of the financial systems to benefit themselves at the expense of others. And millions of people suffer from from that. And then this idea that we're in competition with each other for survival, I think, underlies a lot of the conflicts that we see on all levels of human society today. So <clears throat> I think if we're going to find solutions to the world's problems, the environmental problems, the economic problems, the problems of <clears throat> conflict in the world, we're going to have to go right back to our concept of self because it's from our concept of self that we develop our goals, our aspirations, our plans, and things like that. For example, if I think I'm an American man, then I behave like that. I, I set my goals in relation to that. I, I make my politics in relation to that. I, so the, the supporters of the Darwinian theory of evolution through the monopoly they now have in the education systems around the world, are able to dictate to people their concept of self. I think as a famous English evolutionist, Richard Dawkins, has said, you know, we are survival machines. We are robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. It's a very materialistic concept of the self based on the idea that we're just purely material products and we're in competition with each other for survival on this planet. It's, it's a concept of self that feeds into this whole project of overproduction and overconsumption of material things underlying a whole worldview of competition and conflict and division. <clears throat> so I think if that's going to change, we need a new concept of self mm. you know, being taught in our education systems. What if people were being taught we're all beings of pure consciousness, we're all related to each other? 
uh, we have needs that go beyond material needs. I think we would find a much more balanced human civilization free of the unacceptable levels of conflict and violence that we see in the world today, free of a lot of the financial problems and free of a lot of the environmental problems that we see around us today. Now, are you encouraged by the uh, the breakdown that's occurring at the barrier between science and spirituality? Because it's something of a false duality that didn't always exist. It's relatively recent. But where those are starting to blur now, we're hearing a lot that uh, relates to and points us towards new developments in thinking about the relationship between matter, mind, and consciousness. Yes, I, I am very much encouraged by that. Actually, the my latest book, which is going to be released in November, is called My Science, My Religion. It's a collection of 24 papers that I've presented at major international scientific conferences around the world in which I address you know, this question. And if we actually look at the real history of science, we'll see that the kind of separation that many people today want to make between science and spirituality, it's a false duality that hasn't always been there. Uh, many scientists have <clears throat> drawn their inspiration from spiritual concepts, and you know there are historians of science, like John Hedley Brook from England, of, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, and some of his co-authors have written a book called Science and Theistic Context, where they examine the history of science and find that religion has not only motivated scientific research and theories, but has formed an actual part of them. So I, I myself have been very open in, in saying that a lot of the inspiration for my work comes from my spiritual commitments. Since the early 1970s, I've been practicing bhakti yoga. I became a disciple of a guru from India. And... I studied the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, and a lot of my ideas come from the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, which are collectively known as the the Vedas. So now I I do think that in a scientific arena, in the scientific arena, nobody is required to accept anything I say just because of some statement in the Vedas. I think I have an obligation to show that there is evidence and logic that supports what I'm saying. Uh, so you know, I think that's important. If I was just speaking to some uh, sages in the Himalayan mountains, 
maybe I could just give them a statement from the Vedic literature and they would accept that as evidence. If I go to a meeting of the World Archaeological Congress or the European Association of Archaeologists, they're not going to accept a statement from the Vedic literature as evidence of anything. They want to know, well, where's the archaeological evidence to support that? So I'm prepared to do that. I do that all the time. While admitting that, say, my idea of extreme human antiquity comes from the Vedic literature, ultimately, and my ideas about the devolution of the conscious self from some higher level of reality also come from the Vedic literature, but I wouldn't expect a scientist or science student to accept that just on the basis of some statements from the Vedic literature. I think I have an obligation to show that there is scientific evidence and scientific reasoning that supports uh, what I'm saying. So, so it's, uh, I think there are many scientists who are now beginning to understand that the traditional wisdom uh, systems of the world can be a source of guidance for their scientific research. And that, you know, some people want to define uh, science in such a way that it rules out, for example, conscious agency, intelligent design, things of that sort. But I think a scientist should be open to all possibilities. I think a scientist should be very interested to know whether or not there's some intelligence involved in the origin of the complex structures that we see in organisms all around us. I don't think it should be such a possibility should be ruled out in advance, uh, which is what some scientists try to do. They try to say, well, science is a game, and one of the rules of the game is you can't invoke intelligent design. You can't bring in non-material substances. They try to make uh, rules like that for the game of science. And they can do that, but then they should admit that their science isn't dealing with everything that is possibly true about the world that we live in and observe around us. And I think a real science should include everything that is possibly true about mm. the world around us. Well, we have categorizations of things now in science, such as junk DNA and dark matter, which are basically ways of saying we've got no idea what this is or what it does. So, as you say, we're not scientists. Quite often, are not dealing with with <clears throat> all of reality, with all of the materials that are there that could feed into an equation, into an explanation of what, what what's happening. You know, who we are, where we come from, and what have you. Now, you mentioned intelligent design. Uh, now, that's become pretty much in the mainstream media, as far as I can see, tied up with the idea of creationism. But when I first discovered the idea of intelligent design, I imagined it to be a genuine third way that would be would not be evolution, it would not be creationism, because it involved a different way of thinking about what what cutting edge science was actually showing us was there. 
and that intelligent design, I think a lot of people, because it has become associated with creationism, they may come to some of the concepts in your work and, and be a bit uncomfortable at first. But as you said a few moments ago, you're talking about your obligation to show people there is actually something to this and you're not ducking the big questions uh, regarding your work. And also, as you admit in the book, uh, Human Devolution, you don't have, not pretending to have all the answers by any means, but if we accept that the explanation, the, the, the mainstream reductionist scientific explanation for who we are, where we come from, where we're going, doesn't stack up, then we should at least be asking questions about what the alternatives might be. Yes, and, and, and as I said, I don't object if somebody is an evolutionist. I don't object if they're a creationist. I don't object if they're a supporter of intelligent design. I, I think everyone has a right to give their opinion about what the real truth is. And even if, I mean, you mentioned the word creationist. I think even a creationist has a right to give their opinion as long as they justify it scientifically. And people may not agree with them, that's fine. As long as they're fighting it out or conducting uh, the discussion on the basis of what evidence and logic supposes. Now, they may be... Uh, uh, demonized by a lot of people in society, but I think they've got a right as well. And here's another thing. As I said, I respect the right of each individual person, each individual scientist to come to their own conclusions about these things, what makes best sense to them. So I think no one group should be allowed to take over the machinery of the education system and use it to promote only their own idea. I, I don't think you know, the Darwinists should be allowed to hijack the tax-supported education systems all over the world to promote only their idea in the education system. I think there should be diversity in the public tax-supported education systems. Now, there's a lot of diversity among scientists. It's a fact that today most scientists accept the Darwinian theory of evolution. But there are some scientists who are proposing alternatives, like the supporters of the intelligent design theory, and there are even some cre Christian creationists and other types of creationist scientists. They're in the minority, extreme minority these days. But I think they should still be represented in the textbooks and classrooms of the public education systems. I think the proper thing to do would be give the supporters of the Darwinian theory of evolution the majority of pages, let's say 95% of the textbook pages in biology. But in some small part of the textbook, it should be mentioned, and although most scientists support the theory that's just been outlined in these 95% of the textbook pages. There are some others, a minority, who are proposing different ideas, and here's what they are. They should be presented in a neutral, objective way, along with the evidence and logic that the supporters of the alternatives present to support their ideas. And then let the students make up their own mind about 
these things. I think that that is the fairest thing to do in societies that consider themselves democratic and free. Now, for example, we wouldn't tolerate you know, the government telling us we could only buy one sort of car or only watch one television station or only visit one official website where everything is presented for us. Uh, we, we wouldn't tolerate that, but somehow or other right now we're, we're tolerating uh, the governments through their education ministries telling us that we can only learn one idea about the origin of life. It, it's it's uh, not, and when we know that vast numbers of people have different ideas about the origin of life, for example, in the United States of America, over 80% of the people don't accept the Darwinian theory of evolution as it's being taught by its supporters in the tax-supported education system. About 50% of the American people support you know, some uh, other idea and that it, that's based on creationist principles. Then there are about 20% of the American people who think, well, there was evolution, but it was guided by God to produce human, human beings, which the supporters of the theory just reject totally. They don't think there was any kind of guidance. They think evolution is a totally random process. And then there are about 10% of the American people who accept the Darwinian theory as it's taught by its supporters in the education system. And then there's 10% of the people who just don't care one way or the other. And so I don't think it's fair for the government to take tax money from all those people who have different ideas about the origin of life and give it to one group of people to promote only their idea through the education system. I don't think that's mm. really proper. Now, I, I think there, a diversity of ideas should be represented and I'm not saying give equal time to the supporters of alternative ideas. I would say, okay, let's admit, most scientists now accept the Darwinian theory of evolution. Give them most of the textbook pages, but in some small part of the textbook it should be mentioned, and there are alternatives. I think if that were done gradually, I think we would see the percentages shifting. If there were real freedom of thought and expression allowed in the education system, then I think gradually we would see a new generation of scientists come up holding different ideas than many now do. Now what's happening, however, is that the alternatives are thoroughly delegitimized. If you're a, a student in the education system going through the public schools and the universities, you're taught that the alternative ideas are completely outside you know, the boundaries of, of science, official science. Then, of course, you're going to avoid those ideas if you want to get ahead in you know, the scientific world. It's, I think it's a very 
dangerous situation. I think it's something when government gets involved in determining what is true and not true in science and giving one group a monopoly in the education system, that prevents actual scientific progress. Yes, and I think a lot of people will probably think to themselves that science is science, hard, cold, what is proven is out there, we can go and read about it, it's you know, it can't be disputed because it's been proven. But we talked earlier about the hidden world of archaeology and what gets swept under the rug there. But there's also, as you say in the book, a hidden world of, of science. Uh, you know, in particular, we think about uh, quantum physics and what that's telling us. And a lot of the information coming out of, of um, some, you know, cutting edge scientific fields is basically being set aside if it doesn't fit with the current paradigm of the theories, which is actually insane. Because if you can imagine a scientist maybe trying to solve a problem in his work, you know, what explain something. If you were a detective and you had a suspect and you then found really good evidence, hard evidence that your suspect was not guilty, then you would have to take that into account, not just say, oh, no, no, I'm going to get this guy and put the evidence to one side. But that's what happens in, in science. Yes, that that does. For example, there's you know I talk about there's a, a forbidden archaeology. There's also a forbidden physics. Uh, you know, for example, you know many people have heard about Pierre and Marie Curie. You know, they were husband and wife. They were both physicists. They both got Nobel prizes in physics for their work in discovering radium and some of the radioactive phenomenon connected with that. And especially Marie Curie is very well known because she's a prominent woman scientist uh, who lived in the early 20th century. So she's very well known. So all that you can find in the physics textbooks. You find you know, how Marie Curie and Pierre Curie, her husband, were discovering radium and getting their Nobel Prizes in physics. What you don't read in the textbooks is that they were heavily involved in psychical research, research into the paranormal. So today, scientists, they think that is, you know, they think anything to do with the paranormal is outside hard science. But that's not the actual history of physics. You find the Curies were doing experiments with mediums who had psychokinetic abilities. They were part of a group of 20 prominent European scientists, including five Nobel Prize winners, who were experimenting with mediums in Paris early in the 20th century. The group did two years of experiments with a medium from Italy named Eusapia Palladino. And this woman had mind-over-matter abilities. On, on one occasion, the Curies were doing experiments with her in a laboratory in Paris. And you know, Marie Curie was holding her hands, other scientists were holding her feet, making sure she wasn't moving at all. And in the middle of the lab, a large table was floating about three feet off the ground in the presence of this woman. And Pierre Curie, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, recorded this 
in his scientific notes of the experiments, you know, measuring how high the table was floating off the ground, how long it was floating, and he was saying the conditions of observation were perfect. It was in broad daylight. It wasn't at night or in, in somebody's dark living room. It was in a, a, a scientific research facility in Paris in broad daylight. And after two years of experiments like this, he concluded these things are real and they absolutely have to be taken into account if we're going to have a complete picture of reality. <clears throat> so I think we need to have that complete picture of reality. We can't have a real science if scientists are going to exclude whole categories of facts that prominent physicists like the Curies, for example, observed. <clears throat> so it's... Uh, there is a process of knowledge filtration going on in the world of science, in archaeology, in physics, in cosmology. So I think if people were aware of the whole set of facts, they would come to different conclusions about the nature of reality. Now, the... The Vedas that we've been talking about, the, the ancient texts uh, which have informed and inspired so much of your work are probably, to get deeply into that, it's probably beyond the, the time remit that we've got. But um, you do talk about it a great deal in the book and point out that uh, not only the Vedas, but other cosmologies as well, um, are actually quite consistent with uh, a lot of science, which I think a lot of people will find quite surprising. Yes, I think if you look at cosmologies of traditional wisdom systems, which I've done, and in my book, Human Devolution, I have a chapter which is a cross-cultural study of cosmologies. We'll see they have many common features. Uh, for example, most of them, have the idea that a human being is a combination of matter, mind, and consciousness. They all tend to have an idea of a conscious self that can exist apart from the body. They all tend to have an idea of uh, a mind that has some paranormal types of abilities. They all have concepts like that. And they all have a concept that we're we exist in a multi-level cosmos. We're part of a cosmic hierarchy of beings. And, and when some people see these common features of these cosmologies of different people that existed in different times and places all over the world, they, they tend to think, well, the reason why they're so similar is that the human mind comes up with similar fantasies. And that's their explanation for it. I tend to think there's a different explanation for the similarities among these different cosmologies. Namely, that all these people, widely separated in time and space, were observing the same reality from their different points of view. It's as if people... Uh, we're looking at a mountain from different directions. You know, say one person looking from the north, one person looking from the south, one from the east, one from the west. 
their descriptions of the mountain are going to vary a little bit because they're looking at it from different angles of vision and maybe at different times. And but they're also going it's also going to be obvious that they're talking about the same thing. So the reason why their descriptions of the mountain are the same is that they're looking at the same actual real existing object. So I would say similarly, the reason why these different cosmologies are the same, expressing the same kinds of ideas, are it's because they're looking at the same reality from their different angles of vision. And in my book, Human Devolution, I give scientific evidence that backs up what these ancient cosmologies are saying about us and the universe that we live in. I think there's scientific evidence that we are a combination of matter, mind, and consciousness, or spirit, if you like that word. I think there is evidence that we are part of a multi-level cosmos that's inhabited by other types of beings. Even um, many prominent scientists are involved in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I think Stephen Hawking last year said, yes, there's life elsewhere in the cosmos. Uh, there's a lot of uh, research in cosmology going on now, trying to find uh, habitable planets and other solar systems in different parts of the universe. And I think the reason why is because they suspect there may be intelligent life there. And I think that's true. I think we're we're part of a whole cosmic hierarchy of beings, as the ancient cosmologies tell us. So I think science is kind of gradually moving in that direction. Well, then you come to the question, is the universe itself a creation of consciousness? And that reminds me of a, a little circular thought that I used to have as a child, which is if the universe, is, is it infinite? And if so, how can anything be infinite? And if it's not infinite, then what's beyond it? And basically that boils down to the question of what the ultimate source of of anything is of reality of anything you know it's just what is the source well yes and and i think we have to look at ourselves we see that we are conscious we're individual we're personal i think that suggests that our source must also be individual conscious and personal so i think there's a uh, there's personality behind everything really and as far as the nature of this universe that we live in, I think it's something like a virtual reality system. Uh, some people are familiar with you know, virtual realities, computer-generated virtual realities. You, know, you can put uh, iPhones over your eyes and just be part of a whole virtual reality system generated by... Uh, computers, or even in a, in a more simple way, we could say when we go into a movie theater, a cinema, to look at a, a film, we're entering a virtual reality system. You know, we have an existence outside the movie theater, but for that time we're in the movie theater, we identify with what's 
going on on the screen. If we didn't identify with it, we wouldn't have any experience of of uh, that we'd be willing to pay, uh, you know, some bit of money for to have an experience of. You know, for example, if I identify with the hero in the film, then when he conquers, I experience um, happiness. When he's put into danger, I feel fear. When he meets his beloved, I feel wonderful, like I'm meeting my beloved. If I didn't identify with it, then I wouldn't experience anything. Nothing worth paying for anyways. So I think our universe is something like that. It's a virtual reality system that we've been put into and we identify with it and therefore we experience certain things as part of this you know virtual reality system but we actually have a life outside of it you know just like we have a life outside the movie theater so as beings of pure consciousness our real existence is outside this virtual reality system of the material world. Um, you know, I think a lot, you know, back in the 80s, there was a band called Police. You know, they had a song, We Are Spirits in the Material World. I think that's the actual truth of the matter. And I would say that our, our purpose in life is to wake up to our real existence outside this material level of reality. And there are just different you know, systems of yoga and meditation and contemplation that are meant to help people do that, but we've kind of gotten distracted from that because of the materialistic emphasis in today's education system, which makes us focus on just being a good producer and consumer of material things, you know, so that we're there to buy the latest iPad or smartphone or whatever <clears throat> and we're now all that stuff can be used for higher purpose but uh, if we simply get caught up in the process of producing and consuming more and more material things and we think that's the only purpose of life then I think we've missed missed out on the actual higher purpose of human life. Yeah, well, just in case anyone's missing this, you're talking about the meaning of life, <laughs> something that seems so vast and incomprehensible, uh, or at the same time, perhaps, you know, so such an empty question, because, you know, life is meaningless, science would have us believe, you know, we evolved randomly for no reason from some mud, and we'll return to darkness and nothingness when we die, and that's it. You're talking about the purpose of human existence. That's nothing less than the meaning of life, essentially to re-evolve. Yes, and but everyone has to make their decisions about these things. You know, I, I I can't make the decision for anybody. If somebody actually prefers to believe, well, I'm just stardust. I'm just uh, a combination of molecules that eventually is going to disintegrate and that's it well then you have to everyone has to accept the results of their choices 
their intellectual choices. Uh, so uh, I I have made a choice in my personal life, and I. And I don't think it's founded on belief or fantasy. It's based on the most real thing that I am confronted with at each second, namely that I am a conscious being. And that consciousness persists. Even though my body changes, has changed throughout this whole life. Uh, you know, I once had a baby's body. Now I have a, a body that's much older and developed and my consciousness has remained the same. I can recall when I was in that baby's body. I, I can recall all the changes my body made of matter has undergone, but I am still the same conscious self. It persists. And I think it's going to persist beyond the final change of this material body. And I have a sense of that. I have a sense that I have existed before I entered this present material body. You know, there's a, a sensation that many people have called deja vu, that I have been in this world before, in another body perhaps. Uh, we come into this world with talents and abilities that are very difficult to explain. For example, I'm a writer. I've, I've known since I've been a, a child that I was going to be a writer. Uh, my mother tells me that when I was two years old, she would give me alphabet soup and I wouldn't eat it. I would just spell out words in in the bowl. It, you know, some some children have incredible abilities in music at a very young age. It, it's just impossible for them to have acquired these skills in just the brief time you know, they've been in existence. Or some people are born with incredible mathematical abilities and things of that sort. Uh, people are born with incredible athletic skills. So I think these are signs that we, as conscious beings, we have an existence that goes back before this present body and will go forward beyond this present body. I, to me, it's just obvious. It's not a belief that I got from a book. It's something that I can actually experience with great conviction. But as I said, each individual has to make up their own minds about these things. And I can't make up anybody's mind for them. I can just say, what I believe, I can present the evidence that supports what I believe, that justifies what I believe, and then I just have to leave it up to each individual to make up their own minds about these things. But then one has to live with the decisions that one makes. Yes, and I think that's very important. It's not, I mean, we've got enough people and enough organizations in the world telling us the way things are. And if we don't believe it and don't accept it, we're crazy um, or dangerous even. And we don't need any more of those. I mean, <clears throat> as we uh, uh, sort of come to a close for today, I want to ask you about another one of the, you've already touched upon it, one of the great central themes running uh, throughout human devolution. And that is the idea that uh, we 
some of us have we we've relinquished our connection with the source and this is how we've come to be in this realm of matter and i, I read that section with some sadness because i thought why would i just as an individual why would i want to relinquish the connection with source did i do something wrong and it thought this is a terrible mistake and that's how it felt well, that's not a bad feeling to have. You know, if one has made a wrong turn on the road, uh, it's good to recognize it because that's the only way you're going to get back on uh, to, to your proper destination. But I think the reason is that somehow or other, you know, we think we're going to be happier. We don't think we're doing some wrong thing that's going to result in something bad happening to us, you know, we tend to think, well, I'm happy now, but if I could be in complete control of everything and everyone, I'd be even happier. You know, we, 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 we tend to, I, I think it's something like that. It's not that we understand we're making, but when, but when we live with the results of our choice and experience that, well, it didn't turn out the way that we thought it would, then, you know, we've got an opportunity to make a course correction. You know, so that's that's the way I, I, I look at it. That original decision that brought us here wasn't a conscious decision to do something wrong. It was something that we thought was right and was going to give us greater happiness People often feel that in personal relationships and business dealings and all kinds of dealings. People make decisions that they think are correct and are going to result in greater happiness and benefit. And then it turns out another way. So that's the way I look at it. Well, Michael, perhaps in conclusion today, um, you would care to tell listeners about uh, your website. Uh, I know you've got a number of websites uh, where they can find out about your work, uh, publications, books you have available, um, any talks or events you may be part of. Uh, and of course, as you mentioned, you've got uh, your new book, uh, Forthcoming My Science, My Religion, just anything you'd like to, to put out there. Okay. Uh, I think the first stop for people interested in my work would be my website, mcremo.com, M-C-R-E-M-O dot com. And then from there, there are links to other websites about my individual books, humandevolution.com, forbiddenarchaeology.com, and so on. I, I also have a page on Facebook, facebook.com, Michael Cremo, it's really me. <laughs> it's because there there could be other pages there that aren't run by me, you know, that's so there's a, a page on Facebook, Michael Cremo, it's really me, uh, where you know people can stay up with my activities. Uh, they can also uh, follow me on Twitter, you know, Michael Cremo on Twitter. And I I regularly speak 
at public events, at universities, conferences, all types of gatherings. So information about my lecture schedule can be found. Uh, the best place to go would be the schedule link on mcremo.com, M-C-R-E-M-O.com. And also, uh, there people can find on my interview link on mcremo.com upcoming media interviews, different radio programs. This December, uh, I'm a speaker on a cruise that's going to the Mayan sites in Central America. You know, during the time of December 21st, 2012, there's a, a cruise. I'm a speaker on that cruise going down to those Central American sites. I'll be talking about the Vedic time cycles as they relate to the Mayan time cycles. So information about that can be found on mcremo.com. Excellent. Well, Michael Cremo, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. You're welcome. Nice to have been with you and all your listeners. Well, that's it for another week. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website where you'll find an archive of programs on many equally fascinating topics. It's legalize-freedom.com. You can spell legalize with an S or a Z. I don't mind. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>